Welcome to Level 2. Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. So, Level 2, nice. This is so much better than Level 3. You've got a kind of a spacious feeling. Look over there, queues of hairy blokes outside barbers. Queues of fisher folk at boat ramps. Queues outside hardware stores. Yeah, there were a few of them didn't quite make it through though, did they? Office workers like us are back in their offices too? Well, not us as such, because frankly, who can be asked commuting again once you've discovered how good working from home is? Yeah, but we could if we wanted. Nah. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 14th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main headlines, take a glimpse at lockdown life's quirky aspects, and today's quirk is there is no lockdown. Woo! Anyway, and then we focus on one topic. Level two, but also budget day. So all the best budgets get nicknames. You know, there was the black budget of 1958, and 1991 it was the mother of all budgets. And this year, Henry Cook from Stuff's Press Gallery was speculating beforehand that it would be called the rainy day budget. And it looks like Finance Minister Grant Robertson has sort of given that a thumbs up. You know, this is a rainy day, he said. Put the umbrella up. Yeah, well, it's certainly pouring down right now, isn't it? And the budget reflects that. The government has set aside $50 billion to soften the coronavirus crash over the next few years. That includes $14 billion already spent over the last couple of months. There's $16 billion allocated for spending now-ish. And then there's another $20 billion unallocated, sort of in the kitty, if you like, ready to spend on other measures that may be required. Yeah, those are huge numbers. To give you some context, the $16 billion that's being shoveled out imminently is about five times what a government usually allocates on budget day. Where's it all going? All this talk of rainy days, no doubt it's going into umbrella and gumboot factories. Uh, not quite, but you never know. Next time we're talking to the Prime Minister, see if it's worth putting in a proposal. Got to be more secure than... Ah, nothing. Anyway, a big chunk of the money is going to an extension of the wage subsidy scheme. There's a whole whack of money for infrastructure projects, including the building of 8,000 state homes. You notice how the Prime Minister has that Michael Joseph Savage portrait behind her in some of her Facebook videos? Free vocational training, money for what the government calls green jobs, that's environmental projects, biosecurity, and there's $400 million for tourism to help refocus those businesses. Rainy day budget? It's really the COVID budget, isn't it? Later on the show, Winston Peters talks about the terrible economic ramifications of the coronavirus crisis. He also talks about his dealings with China and about the flounder and field mushroom days of his level four lockdown up north. But first, what's happened today? Another zero day today, with no new cases of COVID-19 to report. And the total number of tests is now up over 200,000, meaning 4% of the population has been tested. The World Health Organization has warned that COVID-19 may never be eradicated and may become endemic around the planet, like HIV-AIDS. They say it's impossible to predict how long it might be circulating. Actually, does that mean we have to do this podcast forever? Hong Kong? which has recently begun easing restrictions, has reported two locally transmitted infections, raising fears of community transmission. For the past 23 days, all new cases in Hong Kong were cases of people arriving from overseas. Eugene Bingham. 
Hello. Hello, Winston, Winston Peters here. Oh, thank you very much for joining us. I'll just so Winston Peters is never far from the headlines. Though he was strangely quiet for the first month or so of lockdown, he was in fact heavily involved in the government response from his home in Northland. So of course we were keen to talk to him and so we put in an interview request with his office a couple of weeks ago. We finally got the chance to talk to him late yesterday. Winston Peters, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Leader of New Zealand First, welcome to Coronavirus NZ. Thank you very much and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start at the very beginning. When was it that you realised New Zealand was going to have to do something about this disease that they were talking about in China? Well, I think the moment we heard that there was a new virus out of China and straight away one's tension went back or memory went back to SARS and uh, um, a number of things like uh, the pork industry that was in trouble in parts of Asia as well in the past. So the moment you see that, you think, well, how big is this? And what we have to do about it. So I suppose it was then a case of trying to watch out internationally for all the evidence that was starting to emerge. There was the, the health side of it. There was also the economic side of it. And I remember interviewing you about the Asian financial crisis when you were treasurer more than 20 years ago. So you've been at the wheel during economic turmoil before now. When did you realise, OK, this is going to be devastating economically? Well, the moment you start seeing shutdowns was when we saw out at Wuhan and thinking, well, three million people went through that province at the time they were uh, suffering from the virus, you then knew that there was going to be a massive spread and then exponentially because those three million people were capable of passing on to others, it was going to be a catastrophe. I mean, back in nine, um, sorry, 2000 and, uh, no, 97 it was. Yes. I'm just trying yeah. to think because we had prices all the When the Thai currency fell out of bed, the Thai baht fell out of bed. That's right. In May of that year and the rest of Asia started to get a cold excepting China. And Indonesia saw its currency had, uh, depressed by 80%, and we lost 60% of some of our markets at the time. You realise there's a crisis here, and you've got to do something real fast to keep confidence in the New Zealand economy going. We stepped things up very quickly. This is a coalition government dealing with an emergency. That must add some layer of complication in this time of Zoom meetings and, and physical distancing. How hard was it to decide on those first steps? It was very hard because you... You're trying to calculate whether what you are doing is the appropriate and proper and adequate measure that needs to be taken, that you've not overracked uh, the problem, so to speak, or you haven't underestimated. And you all know that you're going to be judged by history when the later post-mortems and reviews go on as to whether they're right or wrong. And so we were in a very, very difficult situation, trying to come to grips with imperfect information and, in, and information which wasn't uh, being, well, given to us with the speed it should have been. I mean, the head of the, the WHO was saying there wasn't a pandemic. And yet some of us, in, and those of us who watch a lot of international news, which I do, because, you know, you, uh, you get abreast of modern-day crisis and modern-day events that you need to know a lot about. So all this was happening with imperfect information, but I suppose you've got to do and make do with what you've got. From a coalition perspective, was there agreement in the go-hard, go-early approach? Well, the question was not so much the approach, but how far and when? And have we got the right information to be looking at a certain level, like level three, before we rocket to level four, which took 48 hours? And I'm not speaking out of turn by saying that these are agonising moments because you're concerned at the level and speed at which you're going to A, get on top of the 
malignant health crisis that your people are going to face, whilst bearing in mind this is going to have terrible economic ramifications from which we will have to uh, take a long time to recover. So you've got all these agonizing considerations. And then you realize that uh, that's what you've been sent down here for. It's anybody can sit around and make easy decisions, but it's the tough ones which sort out the, um, how shall I say it? I can't say the men from the boys. <laughs> uh, otherwise, they'll be found regarded as being agistic. There's sheep, sheep and goats, <laughs> wheat, wheat and chaff. <laughs> the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, I like that on that because in the end, you've got to have a grasp of what crisis decision-making uh, criteria are required. You've got, to open, you've got to say to yourself, well, you've heard all this, but let's start with a fresh piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, and work out what, is it, what is, it is we've got to do. Once we were in lockdown, New Zealand's public life, public politics, revolved around the 1pm press conferences, and it was only pretty late in April that we learned some of the finer details of what you'd been up to. You were on the phone to your counterparts all over the world. I think you've said the very first call was to China. What was said in that conversation? Well... It was to be expected that they didn't want us to go into lockdown uh, and they didn't want us to um, be another country that was imaging their m massive concern about uh, what the Corona-19 or then the coronavirus um, was going to be for our country. And uh, I suppose they wanted a discussion about that. And we had a long discussion, but in the end said, look, you'll understand, having heard what you've got to say that we've got to protect our own people in as fast as we can. And uh, it ended up with, well, I hope I see you one day, <laughs> sort of thing, because huh. we come to the end of the discussion. We, you're listening, and you've got to listen when you've got international connections. And then we set about foreign affairs to contact people internationally, alert all the New Zealanders we know who are on safe travel, and that, that number grew to over 23,000, dealing with a whole lot of countries around the world where your, the utilities like transport and aviation is not in your control, it's in control of someone else. And then trying to clear the pathway in some environments which were highly obstructed to get your people onto planes and get them home. But we brought back to our country 80,000 New Zealanders mm. and saw 50,000 foreigners get on planes and leave this country. So 130,000 movements smack in the middle of level four and it didn't imperil, that was the great fear that everybody had, it didn't imperil the health of this country, and that was a great achievement by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That was a, an extraordinary operation, but just circling back to the previous question, when you said the Chinese didn't want us in lockdown, by that do you mean they would really rather we didn't, or they were sad that we had to be? Without speaking out of turn, they wanted a discussion as to why we were doing it, because they thought it was an overreaction, and uh, we said, well, our problem is that all the information we have, are getting is that this, and we're an island nation where a lockdown will work much more effectively than other countries, we need to go with the number one premise and the number one responsibility, which is the health and security of the New Zealand people. So you'll understand why we're forced to make this decision. Hmm. It's, it's ironic in a sense, because in terms of the techniques of lockdown, I guess we were looking at what they were doing and copying them, but on a slightly smaller scale, you know, that big Wuhan lockdown. Well, in the case of Wuhan, they were actually welding people's doors closed to ensure they didn't leave their homes. And, uh, and you've got to understand when you've got 1.4 billion people, that dramatic steps have to be taken to try and contain what was something at the time that they were considering it, a massive threat to their population base and the health and economic future of China. So all these things are understandable. And even when people take different decisions, 
you can sometimes understand why. And I suppose we are fortunate to have some pure, clean problems in front of us that we could address, not the ones that some countries with other borders have got, which are so multifaceted and more so than ours. Sure. Um, just coming back to what you were saying about that big repatriation effort, on March 17, we were saying New Zealanders come home now. Lockdown wasn't quite there yet. But bringing them home represented another risk of infection. And at that point, we were just trusting people to go into self-isolation. So was that something that worried you? you know, did we react strongly enough at that point? Well, it seriously worried us. And then we realised as these planes were starting to come, we we're going to have to quarantine them. And, and it's got to be at this level, it's got to be not voluntary, it's got to be compulsory uh, and for two weeks and under strict rules where we could um, judge that they were complying with our requirements. But in the end, apart from a few exceptions, it seriously worked. Was there any sense, do you feel, that we dodged a bullet, that we might have been unluckier? Well, that's your biggest worry and it's still a worry now, right? You know, we have had zero result today with respect to new, uh, new people contracting coronavirus. Uh, we've had uh, some seriously good results lately. But as the uh, Director General of Health has said, it's like a weed. It can grow up in the garden or on the, on the curbside at any point of time. So that's the difficulty. So, um, you know, we had 44,000 incoming before quarantine. We didn't have enough hotels, but we got that fixed up real fast. And here comes the counterbalancing awful thing that you, you could take advantage of. As tourist numbers were collapsing, the hotels were becoming free. So here comes this free mm. utility to quarantine people. We had camper vans. We had all sorts of things being used in military um, places. But all in all, yeah, we dodged a bullet and we can thank heavens for it. In April, uh, you gave a speech where you, you revealed that the Ministry of Health had proposed shutting the border to Kiwis as well as foreigners, but Cabinet rejected that. I, I was curious to know, how long did that Cabinet decision take? Well, my department prepared a paper because we were trying to impress upon our Cabinet colleagues that whilst we could understand the health advice and we're not trying to contest it, there was a massive risk on the downside of our country damaging uh, almost irreparably our reputation as being a kind of country that shut people out and did not think of the humanitarian matters that were concerned, that there would be massive economic costs for our future and that it would take decades for us to turn it around. So we put that to Cabinet and said, look, we are not recommending that. We think we can handle this. And uh, the economic risks of downstream New Zealand are so disastrous, you've please got to prioritise that in your thinking. And the Cabinet agreed with it. Can we just turn to where you were running this operation from during April? You were up north in Whananaki. I've got to ask about that fantastic photo of you fishing in the backyard during Level 4. What's the name of the horse? Duke. <laughs> and did you catch anything? Uh, <laughs> just over that bank, I go floundering. And yeah, I did catch quite a few. But that day I was just testing out a casting rod to make sure that it was unreading properly and, uh, uh, you know, wind it back in and test it again. And I put some bait on it. Yep. Rather um, a bit too late because the tide was on the turn and it wasn't the right tide. Right. But I thought, and I, and I didn't take the photograph. Someone took the photograph that was with me. And uh, I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, put it on the darn thing, show that someone's trying to live here. And even the most difficult circumstances, 
And then I realized a lot of people are going to say, that's not looking a very difficult circumstance, Mr. Peters. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting it far worse than that. And you know what? There's always somebody far worse off than yourself. True. Look pretty good to me. You grew up there. You know the place well. We know what it was like here in, in Auckland and in, in the suburbs. But what was it like in Level 4 up north? Well, it was very frustrating because you're inside your place. You're only 20 metres from the high water mark. There's magnificent scenes out there. and But the disorganisation of organisation when you're doing things through Zoom and all sorts of phone calls is that you haven't got a you know one meeting, one meeting, one meeting. No, it's one meeting, wait half an hour while somebody screws up on the Zoom. <laughs> Get that right, then the next one. And it starts in the morning, and because we're talking to people offshore, it's all hours of day and night. I think our worst phone call was 2.30 in the morning on business, you know? Yeah. And so you think this should be fantastic, but after a while it's, it, it gets to be uh, a bit frustrating when you can't go outside and you've got to be very mindful that the if you do something, the public might see you and say you're breaking the rules. And um, it's just, yeah, complicated. But then, I suppose, everybody was doing it, and so you get by that way. Yeah. My, my in-laws live up north rurally as well. I know there was a lot of issue with getting things like groceries and stuff as well. It was, it was difficult in rural New Zealand, but the community kind of rallied around. Did you experience any of that? Oh, there was a lot of that. And, uh, you know, one of my brothers would go and get a whole lot of seafood and make sure we got our share. Uh, sometimes when, the, when it was raining, the mushrooms are coming up unbelievable. Uh. You, you get a bucket. And then, uh, of course, you've got to get a bit more resourceful. So I was making bread and uh, sending the Prime Minister a photograph to show that we're all up to this game. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, it was some very great calls and, and conversations with people. But the departmental breakup, and they're all over the place, all trying to go through the phone is a frustrating way to work. However, I could, I could say at the end of it, we'd got pretty good at, being efficient with our time, and I can see it's going to have a profound effect as we come out of COVID-19 in terms that office work will never be the same. Yeah. And can I say, I hope the one great lesson we learn as well is that we learn to be hygienic for our own lives' sake, and I hope it doesn't stop when we get back to normalcy. If we can keep that same hygienic approach, there'll be far less illness in this country. Absolutely. The, the last time New Zealand had lockdowns because of epidemics was the, the 40s and 50s because of polio. Do, do you remember the polio epidemics or, or remember your siblings talking about them? Funny enough, uh, no, I don't. I just remember when you'd go on the old school trip, you'd see someone who had obviously had it. Yeah. And actually I played rugby with the guy that had polio and none of us knew he had it, even though he was training with us and everything else. Because he used to wear about seven pairs of socks huh. to make up for a small leg. Uh, funny, uh, as I say it strangely, I've met people from my school days, 65 years later, and uh, they've got by and uh, you know with polio that is, and um, they've lived have lived happy lives. Back to COVID, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you're in the age bracket of people who were considered more vulnerable to the disease. Were you ever concerned about your own health? Well, not really, because frankly, uh, how should I say? Uh, I remember getting from a very famous New Zealand writer this note saying, Winston, uh, you've got to be careful about uh, the economy. It's all about young people, and some of us old sods got to die too bad. Um, that's the way you've got to see it. And, uh, and I think uh, a lot of old people are very upset about the way they're being treated because I know older people who've got the youth and the health of a 40-year-old, and I know 40-year-olds have got the health of a 70-year-old. We all know who they are. Mm. And in that consequence, I think we've been a bit shapeless and unfocused about the age group, so to speak.
Hey, we just want to turn the conversation to the, the path out of COVID-19, I guess. So there's talk of a trans-Tasman bubble. Realistically, how far away might that be, do you think? I'd like to say next week. We had a discussion with Foreign Affairs in my office and the idea came up and we thought, well, this is great. Let's start talking to the Aussies right now. That was a month ago. In the middle of a crisis, you've got to be prepared for other things a week, two weeks, a month, and even a year away. And so we uh, conceptually said, if we are being as successful at both countries as each other, and if we're going to fly interstate in Australia as an opening up exercise, and we're going to fly into region New Zealand, why not just fly into country as one population? And I think it's being restrained by people being rather cautious, when if you look at the logic and you think, here's the ANZAC population, we're all doing fantastic on, in, in terms of, uh, as I use the phrase, beating the crap out of COVID-19, then why don't we actually get our markets going? Because 55% of our tourism was coming from Australia. Australia's biggest tourist uh, population coming into their country, guess who that was? The second biggest was New Zealand. Now, I know that people have got depressed economic circumstances, but if both New Zealanders and Australians can't go anywhere but in our two countries, it is possible to get the percentage of people coming to this country and vice versa as big as it was before COVID-19 because they've got nowhere else to go. One of the other areas you've been dealing with, of course, is, is international diplomacy around around COVID-19. You've spoken positively about Taiwan having a role at the World Health Organization, but China doesn't like the idea because of their issues with Taiwan. How difficult is it to walk that tightrope? Well, it's very difficult to walk a tightrope like that because what I'm saying is it's not about, how shall I put it, the long-standing, sometimes ancestral disputes between countries. This is a plague that's going to see millions of people worldwide lose their lives. And if there are communities and populations and, dare I say it, nations who've got a standout record of achievement against COVID-19, then their dialogue and their narrative into the input of uh, international uh, kickback against COVID-19 is critically important. See it that way and put aside our prejudice and our, our local politics, so to speak, or our defeat, uh, dispute between nations. We've got a bigger crisis than that right now, so let's put that aside. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to get involved in interfering with any other matter other than to say if uh, a country that uh, we've never had great relations with comes up with a blistering answer to COVID-19, the whole world would want to know tomorrow. Yeah, so some countries are doing very well. Two of the countries that have done worst by the numbers have been the UK and the US, two of our traditional allies, places with very strong connections, cultural as well. Has that shocked you? Well, it shocked me in this context that um, I suppose they they took the uh, first warnings, which were not at the level of alarm that they should have been, at their face value. And if you look at New York, the tracing now back to New York is massive as the, one of the feeder beds of COVID-19 in the United States. I bet they regret that. And in the UK, again, I mean, it's been shattering for them, as it's been for Spain, as it's been for Italy. And Italy, of course, has the oldest population in Europe. And, of course, with all these older people and much older than other populations, their likelihood of dying was exacerbated by the fact that they'd lived so long already. You mentioned New York's having a tough time. All of America's having a tough time. And President Trump's response has puzzled and upset a lot of people. What about you? Well, um, I'm not an American voter. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And I want right now to keep myself out of this debate. (laughs) 
I was leaving a long pause just in case you wanted to come back in, but okay, fair enough. But forgive me when I'm trying to keep on friends with everybody around the world, that's my job, and to get the best out of the relationship, not the worst, it would be very wise for me to, um, how should I say, keep my counsel. So moving to New Zealand, you are the leader of a party called New Zealand First, and this is a time when a lot of people are saying we should be buying New Zealand stuff first. You can see the appeal, but is that really still a practical goal in the globalised world that we've, we've all created? Well, the whole concept of globalisation has taken a real hit because a whole lot of countries have learnt what it's like. There are countries in Europe, for example, who are seriously upset when they went to get medical supplies. They were being denied them by their friends, so to speak, uh, who were saying, no, no, you can't get them until we uh, have got a guarantee that the bank of resources we've got has not been used. So there's some real shocks for people. Now, when I talk about building in New Zealand and making it in New Zealand, well, if we can make it competitive within 10, within 15%, as the famous group of economists called Bill said many years ago, and the money's going to be spent in our economy, then that is a far wiser transaction than to have the sale to an overseas economy, albeit, albeit at a lesser price, but where the money goes straight to some other economy. It's about keeping the money and resources in your own nation. It's not being selfish. It's about putting your own country first, so to speak. So some people are looking for all sorts of bright sides to this big reset of the economy, of society, of the relationships between countries. Apart from this idea of moving away from globalisation, do you see any bright sides to COVID-19? Well, they say it's an ill wind that doesn't blow somebody some good. Uh, and yes, the bright side I mentioned about the future hygiene behaviour of New Zealanders, this is a tremendous uh, chance to reshape that. The other is we're looking with new eyes now at what globalisation means. And whether or not some of us uh, have found ourselves high and dry as a result of not doing enough within our own country and relying on the, upon our own people. I'm afraid that there are some economists and some cheerleaders who went right over the top about uh, so-called free trade and forgot to add the part about it called fair trade. There is an election coming up and, and during this crisis, the spotlight has mostly been on the Prime Minister to the exclusion, really, of opposition parties and, and the coalition partners. I, I guess that will change now the lockdown is easing, but do you think COVID-19 will make it harder for you to campaign for the September election? No, I don't. And the reason for that is um, you should always look at an environment and say, well, if it's going to be tough for me and it's going to be the same for my competitors, now it comes down to who's thinking smarter about how you go about it. And in that context... Uh, we've got a lot of utilities and a lot of opportunity. I can't obviously talk about them now. <laughs> um, you're right. We've got an election night, mate, and we intend to do well. Look, I have to raise the self-interest flag here, and we can't not ask you about the perilous commercial state of the media. Are you worried? Well, now, it'll astonish you coming from me, given the way the media treated me. If you know anybody who's been a politician who's been barraged by the media more than Winston Peters, you tell me. But that said, I believe in the fourth estate. I believe that a free media is critical to our system and our values, and that's why I made a speech in December of last year uh, which shocked the media to say, no, I believe in you guys, but I want you to be the fourth estate, not a bunch of fifth columnists. And also, I want you to strive to be better and to ensure that your industry has standards, not just being critical, but certain standards have slipped in a way because your ownership has starved your in-depth research resources, in-depth investigation, they don't give the journalists the time and the money to do the job properly. And things are down to seven-second sound bites for so many journalists. And I hope, because we just bailed out the media 
for $50 million, but I hope we shape it and frame it so that we have, coming out of that, a distinctive New Zealand brand of journalism, not all foreign-owned and foreign-impressed and foreign-dominated. I might be your guy's only salvation. We've given you a 30-minute interview here rather than, rather than the 15-second soundbite, so hopefully that, that helps. My point is that democracy and our value system has a critical components to it, and one is a free press, and free being the word, a free press. Yes. And also I'd like to add that at this point, if they're listening, I adore my Australian overlords, so there you go. <laughs> um, uh, so final question. Look, well, you might say that, but Ned Kelly doesn't always act in behalf of New Zealand. This is true. Uh, just a, a, a quick uh, rating exercise. How do you rate Jacinda Ardern's performance through this crisis? Uh, in terms of the communication narrative, it's done a superb job and it's difficult. It must be awfully draining because it's the same update every day, the same repetition of the message every day. And uh, I thought the Director General, uh, Bloom, uh, Bloom uh, so I'm Ashley, Bloomfield's done a superb job. Uh, perhaps the reason why he's been so, so good and so good and so is the Aussie guy, I might say, is that it's get on with saying what they know. But the Senate, in terms of presentation, has been almost faultless. And uh, that's a very hard standard to maintain. All right, Winston Peters, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, say good day to Duke the Horse for us, and I uh, hope the flounder are running when you get back up north. I'll send you guys a photograph of me uh, fishing off him. Huh? How's that? Please do. Thank you very much. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 14th of April. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Winston Peters, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. So Budget Day and Level 2 Day done. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Also, if you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Hi, everyone. 